Greetings from the Classic City. Merry Christmas and Happy New Year. Thank you so much for listening to the podcast, not only today, but for this entire year. Um, I really enjoy doing this. I've enjoyed the fact that I've been able to put it on a new platform, and that platform has been able to open it up, so it's so much easier for people to listen now. I hope that you have enjoyed it as we continue into the early part of 2020, the same schedule that we've been having for the last few weeks will probably continue uh, unless there's a reason to do an extra podcast. We'll record and drop each episode on Fridays. So as you are driving home from work on Friday afternoon, hopefully you'll be able to uh, to let me talk you into the weekend. Today's episode, we're going to do our bowl week viewing guide. We're going to talk about the college football playoff and we're going to get some thoughts on the Sugar Bowl between Baylor and Georgia. So uh, again, thank you so much for listening. So bowl week or weeks uh, or a month as it might feel, uh, as I was kind of looking at the uh, schedule, the bowl week viewing guide, I mean, you could start anytime. I'm recording this on uh, on the 27th. And I think there's four or five games today. Uh, and I'll probably have some of them on. But I think for, for most of the viewing public, it's hard to really get into just, you know, the, the lesser bowls. Once you start getting around to, obviously, the playoff uh, with the schedule that it has now uh, on the years that the playoff games are not the Rose Bowl and the Sugar Bowl, you're going to get the playoff on the Saturday uh, between Christmas and New Year's. So, Obviously, that's tomorrow. So we are going to spend some time talking about the playoff. Uh, but the other games, I've just tried to pick out a few that are a little bit intriguing for different reasons. So we're going to start tomorrow on Saturday, the 28th, uh, the noon game that will lead you into the college football playoff is number 17 Memphis, the group of five team that made the New Year's Six this year, taking on Penn State number 10 in the uh, the final college football playoff rankings, and that is the Cotton Bowl. I believe it's the Goodyear Cotton Bowl. So for those who are not really aware or kind of maybe conscious of the New Year's Six, it's six games that are the highest profile uh, bowl games each year. The college football playoff games, the semifinals, rotate through those six games 2-2-2, two, 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 so on a three-year basis. We are finishing the second three-year cycle. So the Peach Bowl and the Fiesta Bowl are the sites of the playoff this year. Uh, Next year, we'll roll back over once again to being the Sugar Bowl and the Rose Bowl as the two college football playoff uh, sites. So I say all that to say that ESPN owns the rights to all six of the games, the Cotton Bowl, the Fiesta Bowl, the Peach Bowl, the Rose Bowl, the Sugar Bowl, and the Orange Bowl. The reason that that's important is because all of these games are on ESPN. So finding them, I will mention uh, where they will be found in times and all of that kind of stuff, but finding them is pretty easy. If you want to watch a big playoff or if you know there's a big football bowl game coming on, turn it on ESPN. That's probably where it's going to be. The other part of that is it is uh, advertising to death. Uh, you're going to get a lot of commercials because the – ESPN Networks, which includes ABC, we'll talk about that a little bit, but ESPN paid a lot of money for the New Year's Six, and the way they make that money back is that they take uh, 
commercials pretty much all the time. You know, it feels like it'll be just right before a big third down and there's like a TV timeout taken. Now, obviously that's not right, but basically after every touchdown, after every timeout, every injured player, they're going to take advantage of that and they're going to go to commercial. The What that means for you watching the game is these games take forever. Each one of the New Year's Six games that I listed off before, you can just go ahead and expect it to be a four-hour game. And that is a little bit crazy. So this year, the Cotton Bowl has the unenviable task of being the game that leads into the playoff games. So, you know, unless you have just all the time in the world on your hands, no kids, and no honeydew list, uh, it's probably going to be hard to lock in, sit down at noon tomorrow, and watch these games all the way till probably what will end up being midnight tomorrow night. So if you're going to kind of plot things out, the Cotton Bowl is the one to skip on Saturday. But I do think it'll be a pretty good game. You've got Memphis. Their head coach, Mike Norvell, just took the uh, Florida State job. So he is not coaching them. But it's a solid team in Memphis. And you have Penn State, who, if it weren't for Ohio State – uh, being in their division, maybe one of the best programs in the country right now. Um, they're in a kind of a similar situation to maybe Florida or, well, before this year, maybe Auburn or LSU, you know, kind of right there in a very, a very good team, but kind of blocked a little bit by another team in their division. So uh, I think this game will be close. I don't think either one of these teams will be able to pull away. When you're talking about bowl games, you always have to really talk and think about motivation. In these type situations, most of the time we have seen upsets because the Memphis team, this is their first time playing in a bowl of this magnitude. It's going to be in Jerry World in uh, Arlington. So being on that stage for the first time, you could see Memphis being fired up. Biggest game probably in their program's history. On the flip side, this isn't even the biggest game that Penn State has played this year. So it, you could see maybe uh, the Nittany Lions coming out and being a little bit sluggish early. But I think usually, or I think maybe what will happen in this game is Memphis may come out, play well early, punch Penn State in the face a little bit, and then Penn State kind of wakes up and kind of realizes, okay, we're in the middle of a football game and maybe we're not playing for the playoff, maybe we're not playing for a title, but we are playing for pride. And so hopefully this will end up being a good game especially in the second half, because I think what, what most people will probably do if you're like me is you start kind of maybe flip over around 3, 3.30, see if it's a good game leading into uh, the playoff games that start at 4. So our first playoff game is number 4, Oklahoma, and number 1, LSU, here in Atlanta in Mercedes-Benz Stadium that I was just in on Sunday. They, uh, they already had a lot of the signage up around uh, Mercedes-Benz not inside the stadium, it was all Falcons inside the stadium, but around the stadium, around the World Congress Center, uh, they were very much ready for the Peach Bowl and the college football playoff. That game's going to kick off at 4 o'clock, I think. It may be one of those, hey, we come on at 4, we talk for 20 or 25 minutes. You know, There's going to be a lot of pomp and circumstance around these playoff games. You'll probably have the cameras showing each team coming out of the locker room. You'll have a sideline reporter for each team, and we'll get to talk to them before the game, each coach, both coaches at halftime, both coaches at the end. You know, I mean, just a lot of pomp and circumstances uh, around the game. But Oklahoma and LSU, 
and we'll get into the breakdown of that game and the second game in the playoff that will be immediately following that at 8 p.m. Clemson and Ohio State in the Fiesta Bowl. Um, it says 8 p.m. That game will kick off whenever the first game is over. They will not overlap those games unless they just have to. Um, I think a couple of years ago when Oklahoma and Georgia went to overtime in the Rose Bowl, they pushed the start of the Alabama-Clemson game probably about 30 minutes until they couldn't push it anymore. They did end up kicking that game off right before Georgia and Oklahoma ended, and I think the thought process was there. We got a full stadium. We got the teams are ready to go. We can't make them wait too long. But they will do everything they can to uh, to wait until the first game is over before starting the second game. Um, there's a lot of positive things and a lot of negative things you could say about the playoff. I think one thing that is positive and that I have enjoyed every single year of the playoff is the idea that back-to-back games you just get to sit down as a fan. And I'm just, you know, purely as a fan, whether it's a – a good thing that ESPN has all of these games or not, you know, all of that's debatable. But to be able, as a college football fan, to sit down and watch the best four teams in the country play each other over the span of seven, seven and a half, eight hours, right back to back, and this be how we figure out our national champion. To me, it's just special. You know, when I was a younger child, before the BCS, you, you would have three or four games that kind of factored into who won the national championship. Then you go to the BCS era and you have just one game. And that one game was great. But now having, you know, basically three games, the two semifinal games and the championship game, it it's just high stakes. And for me, even if Georgia's not involved, even if I don't have a rooting interest, when you're talking about the stakes that you're talking about in these games, it's just fun to watch. The passion, the level of play that you're going to get, they're, they're just going to be enjoyable games to watch. So uh, Saturday the 28th, that's a fun, that's a fun day. Um, no college uh, bowl games on Sunday. Of course, you got the final week of the NFL. So then we'll roll over into Monday night. Uh, we got the Orange Bowl kicking off at eight o'clock. That's number nine Florida and number twenty-four Virginia again on ESPN. So here, here's why this game might be worth watching. Florida, obviously Georgia's biggest rival in my opinion, and then Virginia, the team that Georgia will start next season playing. The first game of our, our year next year is on Labor Day night against Virginia in Mercedes-Benz Stadium in the Chick-fil-A kickoff classic. So uh, a lot of reasons for a Georgia fan to at least turn this game on and see how it goes. Now, I don't know that you'll be able to glean too much off of what you see on the field tonight, eight months from now, nine months from now, when Georgia plays Virginia, but it at least give you an idea of who some of the key players are, the coaches, all of that kind of stuff. I do think if Virginia is able to keep this game close or, God forbid, win, they're going to come into Mercedes-Benz with a lot of confidence at the beginning of next year. I say God forbid because you really don't want to start that se- to start next season against that team that has all the momentum or seemingly has momentum. I think Florida is a much better team. Virginia got blown out by Clemson in the championship game uh, of the ACC. Obviously, Clemson's good but I think Florida's good I think Florida probably wins this by two touchdowns but you never know Um, both teams should be motivated to play in this game Florida obviously playing in Miami in their home state and then Virginia kind of like Memphis being on this stage not necessarily for the first time 
but the first time in a very long time. So that that should be a good game. On Tuesday, which is New Year's Eve, uh, I picked the Alamo Bowl. The reason I did is because they have the Alamo Bowl now holds the spot that the old Chick Fil A Peach Bowl used to have. Um, the game that leads you up to you know, the countdown basically until New Year's. So 7.30 kickoff on ESPN. You've got number 11, Utah, against Texas. Uh, obviously, Utah was uh, just a hair away, a win against Oregon away from playing in the college football playoff. Uh, they lost that game. And so they fall all the way to the Alamo Bowl. And then Texas, who, you know, at the end of last year, Texas upset victory over Georgia in the Sugar Bowl it was all Texas is back and then going into this season and even after that first game of the year when Texas played that classic game against LSU excuse me that second second game of the year I think it was the second game doesn't matter but it seemed like Texas was back and then the season really got into the the heart of the schedule and, and Texas isn't back so this is an interesting game you have a Utah team that maybe not be super motivated because of what they thought they could be playing for. Very reminiscent of what Georgia was in last year. You, you, you're right there. You're in position to make the playoff, and you come up just short. And a Texas team that might not be motivated because this is not where they thought they were going to be this year. For Texas, after that Sugar Bowl, if you would have told any Texas fan, player, or coach, hey, next year you won't be in the New Year's Six, I think they would have, like, thought you were playing a terrible prank on them. I think Texas thought they would at least be in the New Year's Six and maybe even in the playoff this year, and that just didn't happen for them. So uh, maybe two unmotivated teams, but it's the only game on. It's New Year's Eve. You got some time to kill if you're going to stay up late and uh, ring in the new year. So 7.30 on ESPN, Utah and Texas. So on New Year's Day, you start out with two games kicking off at 1 o'clock in the state of Alabama will be ready. It's a noon kickoff in Alabama, but the state of Alabama will be ready as simultaneously Alabama and Auburn will be playing one on ESPN, one on ABC. So let's talk about it. New Year's Day kicks off at one. Now here again, there's some good things about this new era, the playoff and everything, and then there's some bad things. I remember not that long ago when the Outback Bowl would kick off at 11 a.m. Eastern. Now, you've stayed up late to ring in the new year. You get up, you know, this is when I was like a teenager, so I actually could sleep a little bit. So I maybe sleep till like 9, 9.30, game day's on, and before you know it, there's the Outback Bowl kicking off at 11. And then you'd have the Gator Bowl and the Citrus Bowl kind of staggered throughout the morning before you got to a couple of big BCS games in the evening. So to me, it's a long time to wait till 1 o'clock. But 1 o'clock, the Outback Bowl is on ESPN. That's number 18, Minnesota, versus number 12, Auburn. Interestingly, and it'll kind of juxtapose this against what we'll talk about later with uh, Georgia, Derek Brown, the defensive tackle uh, for Auburn, and all of their guys are playing. So Brown is playing um, – so it's a little different than what George is experiencing. So their seniors are all playing. I expect Auburn to wipe the floor with Minnesota. I think Minnesota was a great story. Their upset over Penn State was probably one of the bigger, more surprising upsets of the year for like a highly ranked team. Obviously, you have South Carolina beating Georgia, and you have Illinois beating Wisconsin. Those unranked games, Arizona State over Oregon, those type games that really shook everything up. But when you had a – that, to me, was one of the marquee matchups that actually paid off – was not only a great game, but also really had a lot of uh, effect on the 
playoff because it, it meant that Penn State picked up that extra loss before they played Ohio State, which took a little bit of the luster out of that big game in November. So Minnesota's a good story. I don't think they're going to be able to play on Auburn's level. So Auburn, I think, wins the Outback Bowl. Simultaneously, on ABC, we get Michigan and Alabama in the Citrus Bowl. To me, this is a very, very interesting game because Jim Harbaugh is seemingly in a place where he's not going to be losing his job at Michigan. And I'm not sure if that's right or not. To me, Michigan has underwhelmed pretty much the entire time that Harbaugh's been there. He hasn't beat Ohio State even, you know, last year when they probably should have beaten Ohio State. This year they were in that game for a while and they just couldn't keep up. To me, the talent gap is pretty wide between Ohio State and Michigan, reminiscent of the time when Florida was dominating Georgia. And it was like, okay, it doesn't really matter how good Georgia got. If they're not going to beat Florida, they're not going to be able to really reach SEC title games and, and be in contention. That's where Michigan's at. That last game of the year just looms over them, and it doesn't seem to matter you know, who's favored, how the seasons are going, anything like that. Ohio State's just above Michigan. And so it's interesting to me coming into this game, uh, Harbaugh is safe. And then on the other side, of course, you have Alabama coming off of their most disappointing season since 2010, picking up losses to LSU and Auburn, finishing uh, – I, I don't have the rankings in front of me. I, you know, maybe third in the West? I, I can't remember – you know, how many losses that, uh, I guess, yeah, I tied it or their third in the West with their loss to Auburn, which is kind of crazy. Um, and so the Tua era, obviously over one way or another, even if he comes back, he will probably just spend next year rehabbing. I can't imagine a situation where he plays. He hasn't made a formal announcement of whether or not he's going to enter the draft this year coming off the injury. And he's probably waiting to hear from a lot of the NFL people, you know, what, what would they rather him do? Whenever he goes, he'll be taken in the first round. Whether he'll be taken early or not, that kind of depends on kind of how the NFL teams feel about taking him where he's not going to be able to have a pro day. He's not going to be able to have uh, any kind of workouts, you know, that kind of stuff. But he's got a lot of tape. They've played, he's, you know, he's played in a lot of games and all of his tape looks good. So uh, it'll be interesting to see how he handles that situation. But we roll in, you know, without Tua as their starting quarterback, at this point, Alabama's 0-1. So a lot of questions surrounding the program. They, like Georgia, have some players that have announced that they're going to pl- uh, forego senior seasons and go to the draft. They're not playing. So this is going to be an interesting game to me. I would, you know, on the surface, I say you take Saban over Harbaugh anytime. But with so many Alabama players, you know, either hurt or not, are not going to play because of the draft – and the Michigan players may be thinking this is an opportunity for them to make a big statement. Maybe this game is closer than you would initially think. I'm sure Alabama ends up winning. Again, it's more of a, hey, it's New Year's afternoon. You watch college football. You hope that this game is close and interesting to make you want to sit there and watch it. As we move through Christmas or Christmas Day, New Year's Day, uh, we get to 5 o'clock and the kickoff of the Rose Bowl. Now, this game has the potential on paper to be one of the best uh, bowl games we see this year. Number six, Oregon coming off their big victory over Utah in the Pac-12 title game. And then number eight, Wisconsin, who played Ohio State as good as anybody was able to play them throughout the entire season. 
kicking off in the Rose Bowl, the most majestic setting in college football. I don't know how they do it, but every year, no matter if it's been a, what the weather is here, you know, when I'm watching the game, you turn the TV on and the Rose Bowl comes on and the field is perfect and the sun is peeking over the mountains in the background and that stadium is always full and it's 65 or 70 degrees and it just think, makes you think, how many days to the Masters? This is what I want. I want warmth. I want to head out of winter. Christmas is over. There's nothing fun now to look forward to in winter. Let's push on through. Let's get to spring. Uh, and the Rose Bowl for me is that first little initial taste of spring. Now, here in Georgia, we've had 70-degree days on Christmas. I eat outside on Christmas Day. So um, not exactly the doldrums that we might be feeling in other years. But the Rose Bowl, interesting game. Okay, I I don't really know a whole lot about either one of those teams. Uh, Both of them suffered big losses. You know, as I mentioned earlier, Illinois upset over Wisconsin and Arizona State's upset over Oregon really took both of those teams out of college football playoff uh, contention early and early in the season. So it's going to be interesting to see how they play. But in that setting, hopefully you just get a great game. That leads us to the last game on the list, which is 845. Yes, that time was right. 845, but it will be more like 9, and after staying up late to ring in the new year the night before, it'll feel more like about 2 a.m. Georgia and Baylor kick off again 845 from New Orleans in the Sugar Bowl. That game can be found on ESPN. That's number 5, Georgia, and number 7, Baylor. Obviously, we are going to talk about that game here in just a few minutes. Uh, but before we do that, let's jump into the, our college football playoff preview. I want to start the playoff preview by kind of recognizing something. This is one of those things that on paper seems just amazing. But at least to this point, has not produced the drama that I think maybe the people that run college football uh, hoped that it would when the playoff concept came out. Like I said earlier, the playoff games to me are two games that I can always just plug into because of the importance of them and the quality of the teams. Unfortunately, there's never been two even good games back-to-back in the playoff. You know, you had... The Georgia-Oklahoma game a couple years ago, dear and dear to all of our hearts, and the Rose Bowl, you know, just an amazing game. One of the best college football games I've ever seen, just taking out, you know, my own personal fandom for one of those teams. I mean, as as an observer, if you said that game was Alabama and Oklahoma, I would have enjoyed it probably a lot more because I wouldn't have been feeling the excruciating pain that I was feeling watching that game. But then you followed that up with a pretty lackluster Sugar Bowl with Clemson and uh, Alabama, where Alabama, it it was just a defensive struggle, and Alabama just kind of seemed in control. That was Kelly Bryant, Clemson, and they they were good, but they just weren't to the same level. And so more often than not, that's what we've seen in the playoff. Games that aren't dramatic, games that don't come down to the end uh, with those huge, huge stakes. Last year, both games were pretty much blowouts. Now, Kyler Murray made it interesting for Oklahoma against Alabama, in the second half, 
But the reality of that game was Alabama was in control for the majority of it. And, of course, we know that Clemson blew out Notre Dame, which uh, got Georgia players to take to Twitter. We'll talk about that in a few minutes. So we've never had two great games. You know, every year you just hope, and especially without a team in this, I hope for just two amazing games, back and forth. You know, with these teams, you think I'm probably going to have a lot of offense. Just dramatic games. If you gave me two one-possession games in the fourth quarter, I'd take it right now. Even if, you know, let's say LSU's up seven and they score a touchdown and then it's four, that's fine. If it, if it's interesting in the fourth quarter, I'll be excited because, well, I mean, it's the playoff and you, and you want to be able to sit there and enjoy it. So we'll start with the Peach Bowl. Four o'clock, as I said during the viewing guide, on ESPN, LSU and Oklahoma. couple little facts. This is LSU's first time in the – playoff uh the last time they were really at this point as a program was 2011 when they were undefeated the number one team in the country coming into the bcs championship game only to get shut out and lose 21 to nothing to alabama who they had beaten during the regular season but got into the playoff or to the bcs title game because you know they're alabama So first playoff appearance for LSU since the playoff began. For Oklahoma, this is their fourth appearance, which you would think means, hey, they've got some experience. That should lead to good things. The problem is that while it is their fourth appearance in the playoff, they are yet to win a single game in the college football playoff. So um, both of these teams, to me, at least in my head, had similar seasons, okay? So... Strong offenses from the beginning of the year. Dominant offenses. Questionable defenses. But as the season progressed, the defense improved for both of these teams that by the end of the year, their defense was at least good enough to keep them in games and win games and, you know, in LSU's case, give them the opportunity to continue playing offense at the very high level that they had been playing offense and actually play defense at a level that created a couple blowouts against Texas A&M and Georgia in the SEC title game. For Oklahoma, obviously, and for these teams, as I say, their seasons were very similar, with the one exception being Oklahoma's loss to Kansas State in Manhattan in the middle of the year, LSU undefeated. They have the Heisman Trophy winner, LSU does. So, uh, Joe Burrow, a magical season. I'll be honest with you, I did not really care for him just as a person, um, just the way he talked, you know, the bravado, all of that kind of stuff. I, I prefer a more humble kind of approach to things. So my impression of him was that he was kind of, you know, a little bit of a jerk. And then I saw, you know, in their senior night when he ran out on the field against Texas A&M uh, with him, the the spelling of Burrow kind of being like the go Tigers, the, the way they do it. Uh, I thought that was just a really cool video. If you haven't seen it, find it somewhere um, of him. Just they kind of follow him out of the tunnel. He stops and, hugs his mom and dad and then you know thanking the crowd and everything just a a really cool moment in sports but then his Heisman Trophy acceptance speech if you haven't heard it it's too long to insert here but go take a few minutes to listen to it 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 was very uh passionate it was humble um he's a he's a great player and and maybe I had him wrong just as a person uh, maybe what I had heard from him in press conferences and stuff like that was uh, was not quite the whole picture of Joe Burrow. So coming off of a magical season for LSU and Burrow, the Heisman Trophy, and 
you know, Oklahoma, it's interesting, has a a quarterback in Jalen Hurts who's making his fourth appearance in the playoff. Um, Freshman, sophomore, junior, and now at uh, Oklahoma and not Alabama, senior. He's the first quarterback to ever uh, start a college football playoff game for two different teams. I don't think he'll be the last with the way the transfer portal and the grad transfer rule is happening now, but he is the first. So uh, just a very interesting season for Hertz. The beginning part of the year, he just he looked amazing. You know, he was the front runner for a long time for the Heisman. He was running. He was passing. His, his passing had improved to the point where you really thought, man, you know, Lincoln Riley, there must be something in the water in Norman because he can take these guys in just a, a year or two Baker Mayfield, uh, Kyler Murray, then Jalen Hurts, and they just all of a sudden they just click and they're just these amazing players. Uh, Hurts really kind of took a step back towards the middle and end of the year, at least in the games that I watched. He was still playing well, but he was he, he really had to focus on his running more. The passing seemed to really kind of regress a little bit, and I don't know if there were things that defenses were doing that kind of slowed him down a little bit, but the turnovers, the turnovers were the things that really jumped out to me. You know, he kept Baylor, he's the one pretty much on his own that got Baylor into that huge lead in the first half when they played during the regular season. He, he just a lot of fumbles, a lot of picks, just too many interceptions, too many turnovers to to really be considered, even with the statistics that he had at the end of the year, to be considered a favorite for the Heisman going into that uh, presentation. You just knew that he really wasn't going to be there because of all those turnovers and what it really did to hurt his team. So while Oklahoma has the quarterback with all the experience, I think LSU has the quarterback that's playing at a higher level, at least right now. So when I look at these two teams, I see a lot of similarities, the way things have gone for them throughout the year. You had Lincoln Riley, offensive coach, you know, a hot commodity. Maybe we'll see after this weekend. Maybe if they lose on Saturday and the Cowboys lose on Sunday, he may be the Dallas Cowboys coach on Monday morning. Uh, That's how quickly things may change for Oklahoma here. Uh, I think LSU is a better version of Oklahoma. I do think this game will be good. I think Oklahoma will play well. But in the end, I think LSU wins what will be rather comfortably, 38-27 is what I've got written down here. And if there is going to be a blowout in these two games, this is probably it. So while I think it might still you know, be a touchdown, two-touchdown kind of game, um, this is the one that I could see if you told me beforehand, hey, LSU wins 42-14, to yeah. Yeah, I could see that. I could see them doing to uh, Oklahoma exactly what they did to Georgia, you know, just wearing them down offensively uh, and then their defense doing just enough to stay in the game. I think what's interesting to me about LSU, and I said this to somebody else a couple of weeks ago, their best defense, and they've got good defensive players. That cornerback, I don't remember his name right now, but the one that made the first pick against Georgia when Georgia was driving to end the first half, um, He's a freshman, and he's great. And they they got good cornerbacks. they got some good um, linebackers. Their defensive line isn't nearly as good as it has been or was in the past. But what LSU has going for them defensively is how great their offense is. When you have an offense that's going out there and just scoring, you know, touchdowns or field goals, on seemingly every drive. I mean, they didn't score on every drive against Georgia, but, man, it felt like they did. 
when you have an offense that's going out there and being that productive, always moving the ball, hardly ever going three and out, um, what it does to the opposing offense is put a pressure on them from the beginning of the game. You know, LSU gets the ball to start this game. They go down, they score a touchdown. That's not the end of the game. But, man, the pressure that Oklahoma's offense then feels to go out, well, we got to score. We, we, we have to score because if we punt and they score again, all of a sudden they could be running away with this thing and it's midway through the first quarter. So the best thing to me that Oklahoma – or sorry, LSU has going for them defensively is that their offense is so good and it's going to put such an enormous amount of pressure on the opposing offense that it may take the opposing offense out of their game before the game really even gets started. Will Lincoln Riley have the patience to continue running Jalen Hurts if Oklahoma gets down in the first half? I'm talking about 10 or 14, okay? Because if Jalen Hurts has to win this game with his arm, there's no chance he can do it. Now, if Oklahoma is able to stay close and Oklahoma is able to be in this game in the second half, then Riley can keep running his offense, which will be some passing, some end arounds to um, their wide receivers. And then obviously Hurts as a, a running quarterback, probably as good as we've seen in college football, just strictly, you know, quarterback read situations, uh, at least in the last five or ten years. You know, they can stay in the game that way. And the Oklahoma offense is very good. The problem is if they make them one-dimensional and make Hurts pass too much, you're going to see the turnover start at that point. He's going to force things because that's what he's done the second half of this year. All of his you know, fumbles, the interceptions have all come with him trying to do too much. So if early in this game he feels like he has to do it all himself, I think that is the prescription for LSU blowing out Oklahoma. Either way, I would be very shocked to see Oklahoma win this game. The reason that for the first time since the playoff began, there was so much talk about who's number one and who's number two was because who everybody assumed was going to be number three. And that's a good way to kind of frame the Fiesta Bowl. Oklahoma is a good team, but they have shown throughout the course of the season their flaws. Uh, the, not just a loss. I mean, yes, they lost a game, and the other three teams at the top of the playoff rankings had not lost any games. But the difference between Oklahoma and Clemson is Clemson is a complete team, as is LSU, as is Ohio State. So the idea that one team was going to get to play a team that had some flaws, and that team ended up being LSU, left Ohio State, the number two team in the country, who was number one at various times throughout the year, who had an extra special season, you know, won a lot of big games, won them in impressive fashion. I mean, outside of a struggling uh third quarter basically against Penn State you know Ohio State looked their best in their big in their biggest games I know Wisconsin played them tough in the Big Ten title game but to me the way Ohio State handled that pressure was actually the most impressive thing I saw from them all year they got up on Wisconsin in the regular season and just beat them like a rag doll from the beginning of that game Similar start to the Penn State game, similar start to the Michigan game. And in all of those games, even though maybe there were some hiccups along the way, you never really felt like uh, Ohio State was really in trouble because with all the things that the other team might have done to try to get back in the game, they never really put pressure on them. 
the way that Ohio State and Justin Fields in particular handled the pressure in the Big Ten title game kind of changed my opinion on Ohio State in general. So coming into this game, you know, Ohio State's being told they're the number two team, maybe number one, kind of like 1B if you had to rank them that way. Clemson, well, man, according to Dabo Sweeney, Clemson, they don't even, nobody wanted them in the playoff. So Clemson's playing the respect card hard, at least in their locker room. I don't know how much that matters. You know, for me, I get the argument. I get and understand if I was a Clemson fan, or let's just say Georgia was in Clemson's situation, you're going to rank us three. You really want to do this. We're the reigning, defending national champion who is undefeated, and you're going to rank us three. There's, I get that. Okay, I get why internally you would want to talk about that, think about that, and use that to motivate you. However, I don't think I would talk about it. I don't think it would be a narrative that I would use talking to other people the way Dabo did talking to the media about it because it kind of just comes off as whining. And I think outside of Kirby Smart, Dabo Sweeney is probably the coach that I admire the most and like the most in college football. The way he handles things, the just the humility. I, I talked about it earlier in reference to Burrow. Man, Dabo says all the right things. He seems to just be for his players. He doesn't try to come off like he's the X's and O's genius. He's the CEO of that program. But man, whether it's like, hey, we're you know we're gonna celebrate being in the playoff by we're gonna have some pizza here. You know, just the way he does things, the way he carries himself up until the end of this season when he started whining about Clemson not getting any respect. Man, he, he's, he was batting a 1,000 in my book for a long time. So the question has to be in this game is how good is Clemson? And the reason we're asking that question or I'm asking that question is because they haven't had to show it. I mentioned earlier that Virginia is playing in the Orange Bowl against Florida. Virginia got blown out in the uh, ACC title game. I expect them to lose to Florida in the Orange Bowl. Um And the reason I'm talking about Virginia in respect to Clemson is because within the conference, that was the toughest team they had to play this year because the ACC was down. Does the ACC suck all the time? No. Did they suck this year? They absolutely did, and there's no way anybody can argue that. When you see the way Miami's already played in the bowl game, when you see just in general the ACC this year, they're just not good teams. Florida State's going to be playing in a bowl game here in the next couple of days. Watch it. They're just not good teams. They're they're Teams that are getting coaches fired or their teams with very new coaches just trying to get rolling like tech. It's just a really down year in the ACC. And the reason that matters is not because Clemson's not good. It's just we haven't been able to see how good Clemson is. And Clemson hasn't been able to test themselves. And that has been my question about Clemson all year. Good friend who's a Clemson fan asked him, do you think it will matter in the playoff that Clemson has to play a team at a level that's on their level really for the first time in this entire season. He didn't feel like it would matter. I'm not sure it will either, but we're going to find out. And I think it's interesting to be this far into a season and to be undefeated and champions of your conference and headed into the playoff, but have legitimate questions about are you as good as you look because of the level of competition? I don't know if it's fair or not, but it's the reality of things. So for Clemson, all the questions surround, hey, are you as good as it seems like you are when you're going to be playing a very good team in Ohio State? For Ohio State, it comes down to one guy. 
Justin Fields. I read something this week that said Fields has said he is 80 to 85% at this point. Well, maybe he is lowballing it. He's had a knee issue throughout the year. There's been two different games that I watched, and I did not watch every Ohio State game. Uh, but a couple different games that I watched where he got hit on his knee and went under the tent. There's been no saying, okay, this is what it is, you know, but he is not 100%. And I'm going to tell you right now, one, I can't imagine he would actually tell the truth about his health. That's just not something that players or coaches do anymore. But if he's 85%, Ohio State's going to lose this game. I don't think 85% is good enough to beat Clemson. And when I say that everything for Ohio State boils down to Justin Fields, that's not to, you know, put anything bad on Dobbins or Chase Young or any of their other great players. It's just that Fields is such an important part of their offense. The difference this year and last year in Ohio State, the season that they had, you know, making the playoff versus not making the playoff, the difference is Justin Fields. So, if Fields is 85%, I think this game is over before it starts. Now, we have to talk about Chase Young. Again, I did not watch Ohio State 12 or 13 times this year, but when I did, it was when it was big games, Wisconsin, Michigan, Penn State. And what, what I saw was, one, I'm so glad these games aren't going to be on Fox because the Fox announcers just man crush on Chase Young was annoying to have to see them circle him before every play talk about how amazing he was he played great okay I don't I don't want to take anything away from how great that he played but it's very much a Gary Danielson Alabama situation Alabama can be great and Danielson talks about him and it makes me hate Alabama even more and feel like they're not as good just because he won't shut up talking about him that's how I felt about Chase Young anytime I would watch him He'd play great. He'd have two, three, four sacks, you know, in in these games, and he would definitely be somebody that was impacting the game. But they would gush over him every single down like he's the only reason anything good was happening for the Ohio State defense. He was their marquee player, and he made some big plays, but that whole defense is solid. It's not just Chase Young. So, his biggest games definitely came on the biggest stages, and this stage is as big as they've played on all year in the playoffs. So I would imagine, you know, Chase Young probably just based on what he's done this year going to have a big game. So then you kind of get down now to the coaches and you think about Dabo versus Ryan Day, and man, could you imagine anything being more different? Dabo played this role a few years ago when Clemson was just starting their run, and he was the inexperienced guy as far as big game situations uh, were concerned, and he was kind of the student to Saban's master. Well, this this is a two-time winning national championship coach taking on a guy who has all of 13 games as a head coach in his career as far as experience goes. What Ryan Day has done this year, I think, is probably, to me, the most impressive thing from a coaching standpoint that I've seen in college football. Before the year, I, was, I didn't end up publishing it, but I, I was kind of going through the top ten teams as I saw them coming into this year, and Ohio State wasn't even in there. And the reason it wasn't is I had the assumption that having a new coach come in post-Urban Meyer was going to have a huge effect on Ohio State and that they would take a step back this year. It wasn't that I just looked at their team and thought, man, they're really not that good. It wasn't that I looked at their schedule and thought, man, I don't know how they're going to get through that Big Ten schedule with Rutgers on it. 
It wasn't anything like that. It's just a natural thought process, I think, for a lot of people that you get a new coach, you don't get better. And that's exactly what happened this year. Ohio State was better this year with Ryan Day than they were last year with Urban Meyer. And Urban Meyer is a very good coach. So even though Dabo has a huge level of uh, experience advantage over Ryan Day, nothing that I've seen from Ryan Day this year makes me think that this moment's going to be too big for him, which is interesting because I think on paper you would have assumed that would be a big advantage for Clemson. And I'm not sure it's going to be. When you kind of get down to, okay, what do you really think is going to happen? I have no feel for this game at all. Uh, Of course, because of personal feelings, I want Clemson to win. I'll be cheering for Clemson as much as I can cheer for anybody that's not Georgia. So if you ask me, okay, Jamie, you get to pick who wins this game. Who are you going to pick? Well, I'm going to take Clemson to win, and now, okay, we don't even have to play it. I don't know how much of that is just hoping for my friends that love Clemson, that they get to celebrate some more. And I don't know how much of that is just my honest thing. I don't like Justin Fields. I don't like him. I would not eat green eggs and ham with him. I do not like him Um, because of the way he left Georgia. Not that he left Georgia because of the way he left Georgia. Um, Not going to go into that right here, but the way he left, just the the what it was just not good. Now I'm getting a little off track, kind of getting fired up thinking about it. Here's what we know. We've seen Trevor Lawrence in these situations. My perception, I look back at some of the statistics. I'm not going to bore you with them here. Lawrence had a good regular season last year. You know, good enough that Dabo knew he needed to turn the team over to him and tell Kelly Bryant, hey, you're not going to be a starter anymore. But Lawrence wasn't perfect at all during the last two-thirds of last season he was good but they didn't put everything on him Trevor Lawrence was amazing in the playoff game against Notre Dame and he was amazinger if that's a word if it's if it's not it should be because that's the only way to describe Trevor Lawrence coming a week later against Alabama in the national title game last year Lawrence's best two games of last season were against the best opponents they played in the semifinal and the championship game, and he showed himself to be absolutely ready for primetime. If Clemson gets that Trevor Lawrence, Clemson wins this game, okay? So if Lawrence plays as well as he did last year in the playoff, in the semifinal and the final, I don't care how good Ohio State is. Clemson, what Clemson has is they have a very solid defense, Maybe not the big name players that you've heard of because they had, you know, their entire defensive line went to the NFL last year, but they have very good players on defense. They have a great running back. They have multiple great receivers, and they have a quarterback that seems to be able to handle these moments. On the other side of the ball, you have a great defensive lineman, some great players on defense, and a quarterback who has not proven that. And so that's why I'm going to take Clemson in this game, that and the fact that I don't like Justin Fields. We're not going to go down that road again, but I don't like him. So I'll take Clemson 31-30. And as I say that, if Jeremy's listening, yes, this is payback time, okay? I want 31-30. I want you to be as miserable for the majority of this game as I have been so many times the last few years watching Georgia play, but I do want you to be happy in the end. So there's that. Um, I think 
if Clemson can slow down Chase Young, and that's the key to me in this game. If Chase Young goes crazy and has four sacks like he did in some of those games, uh, in the big games that Ohio State played during the season, you know, I could definitely see Lawrence kind of struggling a little bit. He hasn't looked as great during this regular season as he did in last year's playoff. He hasn't regressed. He hasn't played poorly at all. He just hasn't been that great again. I'll be very interesting to see if they could slow down Chase Young. Because if they do, I think it's fair, whether it's 80, 85, 90, 95%, I think it's fair to say Justin Fields is not 100%. And if Clemson's defense is able to slow down the run, which I expect them to be able to do, even though Dobbins is really, really good, the Clemson defense is probably the most underrated of all of these. If you take all four playoff teams and you say offense, defense, you know, and and you know, are they rated per, you know, what's your perception of them versus what the reality is? I think that's the one thing that I'm not hearing enough about. Clemson's defense is the best defense that is in the playoff. And their offense is, to me, as good as anybody else. So that's going to be the difference. If Ohio State can't stop Trevor Lawrence, I'm not saying that Clemson's defense is going to stop Justin Fields, but they're going to be able to stop him enough to give the offense plenty of room to win this game. So that's my pick in the second playoff game that will be ending, I don't know, somewhere probably after midnight tomorrow night. I'm going to take Clemson 31-30 over Ohio State. Uh, But again, I don't have a great feel for what's going to happen in this game. This is the one that needs to produce, okay? For all the people that are talking about expanding the playoff, I haven't seen enough good playoff games to make me want to see more playoff games. There's a lot of logical reasons. Five power conference, five conference champions. Why we have a 14 playoff. I can buy all of that. I see it going to eight in the future. But what I haven't seen is competitive playoff games that make me say, man, we need eight teams playing in these games. I want more of this. I'm not seeing that. Most of these playoff games have been blowouts and... I think if you've got Oklahoma this week, if they were playing Wisconsin, or sorry, LSU playing Wisconsin this week, I think that's probably a, a blowout. If Ohio State's playing Baylor this week, that's probably a blowout. If Clemson is playing Oregon this week, that's probably a blowout. And frankly, if Oklahoma was playing Georgia this week, that's probably a blowout too. So that's the problem I have with expansion is that by the time you get to the end of the year, you really want to tell me that the Wisconsin and Georgia and Baylor and uh, whoever's ranked seventh. And now I can't remember, or even, you know, Florida's there at nine. You want to tell me Florida should have been able to argue that they should have been in the playoff and have a shot at the national title. I don't know, but this game, this Fiesta bowl needs to produce and it needs to give us a great game. And, For all the people that are talking more playoff, I would love to see for the first time in the history of the playoff two good games. They don't have to be two great games, but just give me two good games and I'll be a happy camper. We'll finish up the final podcast for 2019 talking about the Sugar Bowl. For Georgia, we're in a similar situation we were in last year. Uh, Georgia comes into this game missing out on the playoff. Uh, Two losses coming into the game. Same location. New Orleans for the Sugar Bowl, same date, same bat time, same bat channel. Everything seems to be the same. This year, the opponent, again from the Big 12, uh, the the Big 12 team that lost the Big 12 title game. This year, we get Baylor. Obviously, last year it was Texas. 
So let's talk a little bit about last year because a lot, of course, because this is two years in a row, Georgia's being in this game, uh, a lot of comparisons to last year, of course. Last year during the playoff, you had Georgia players tweeting about Notre Dame specifically, who was number four, um, that they shouldn't have been in the playoff. I don't, you know, I don't buy any of that. We've talked about that here. But Georgia players tweeting, and then they come out a few days later against Texas and just didn't look like the same team that had played for the majority of the year. So early in this bowl season, Kirby said, I'm only taking players uh, that want to be there. Now, I'm not 100% sure what that means, but I think what he's referring to is the fact that DeAndre Baker, uh, who had already announced that he was leaving early and going pro and all of that kind of stuff, went with the team to New Orleans but did not play in the game. And I'm just assuming that means he was a distraction. I've read on a couple of message boards that maybe some players were out, you know, partying and stuff like that. I mean, it's New Orleans, it's New Year's. Um, on the flip side of that, I read in those same stories that Texas players were out too. So I don't know that it's really like a, man, Georgia went crazy in New Orleans and that's why they played so poorly. I think kids are kids and they're going to do what they're going to do. But Kirby has tried to set a different tone for this lead up to the Sugar Bowl than other than, than last year in particular. The reality of the New Year Six in the college football playoff era is this. It was the same as, at least in my opinion, the same as the, the old BCS Bowls that weren't the national championship game. So it's interesting because they designate with this concept of the New Year Six, they designate six games every year that you're going to want to pay attention to. And they elevated two games. When you take the Cotton Bowl and you take the Peach Bowl and they kind of raise them up to what was the old BCS Bowls, you kind of elevate two more games to say that they're more important. But the reality of the playoff is now, if you're not in the playoff, do any of the bowl games really matter? And so in a way, even though you say these two games are more important, they, they join these games as the really important bowl games that you're going to want to be interested in. We're going to put them on in prime time. There are going to be no games going up against them. So all of the college football world can focus in on these New Year's Six games. But the non-playoff New Year's Six games really don't have the stakes that they used to. You know, Georgia fans are very apathetic about Georgia going to the Sugar Bowl. Fifteen years ago, that would not have been the case. In 2002, Georgia won the SEC championship for the first time in 20 years, and we got to go to the Sugar Bowl for the first time in, you know, some 20, probably 20 years, and it was a huge deal that we were in the Sugar Bowl. When we turned around and went back to the Sugar Bowl in 2005, nobody was complaining we were in the Sugar Bowl again. Nobody. When Georgia was in the Sugar Bowl in 2007, nobody was complaining we're in the Sugar Bowl. Oh, man, it's New Orleans again. The Sugar Bowl meant something. As a Southern football fan, that was the game. You know, it, it was our version of the Rose Bowl. But now, even myself, i got to be honest with you, I was hoping Georgia would go to either the Cotton or the Orange just because it's different. We haven't been to those games before. So in a way, even though the New Year's Six is supposed to elevate everything and make these games feel more important, you do get better matchups. Now, I will say that. You know, when we went to the um, Sugar Bowl in 2002, you play like a four-loss FSU team that, yeah, had won the ACC, but they really weren't that good. So the fact that we're playing Baylor, you know, another team that lost in its conference championship game, that's good. I, I mean, I'm at least excited about that. But I think what you have to realize is, the apathy that you're feeling, it's, it's not really 
about the Sugar Bowl. It's not even really about Georgia's season. It's, it's either playoff or nothing right now. Now, obviously, there are other teams in other situations. If you're Memphis, you're excited about playing in the Cotton Bowl. If you're Virginia, you're excited about playing in the Orange Bowl. If you're Florida, I'm not even sure Florida's excited to be in the Orange Bowl this year. They were in the Peach Bowl last year. Um, so I, I just think that when you are at the level that Georgia is as a program and when the team expectations is that you're going to come in and you're going to compete for the playoff and you miss out on the playoff – it's not a knock on the Sugar Bowl. It's not a knock on anything other than the fact that you're not in the playoff, and that's really the only thing that would have made Georgia fans and probably Georgia player and coaches feel like they were playing for something real. You know, I think once they get there, once they get on the field, you want to win the game because you just have personal pride. But I think the lead up to it, maybe the amount of focus that you have on it, it's just not the same. And that's shown in the way the players approach it. We've already had two players, Andrew Thomas and Isaiah Wilson, say that they are skipping the bowl game in preparation of leaving early and going to the NFL. And I don't blame them one bit. I didn't blame DeAndre Baker for not playing last year. It's in their best interest to not go out there, you know, financially in their best interest to not go out there and get hurt. And football is a contact sport. And you can't tell me there's, oh, there's no way they'd get hurt. Tell it to Tua. So if you don't have anything to play for, why would you put your future and millions of dollars on the line for both of those guys? So Thomas and Isaiah Wilson are not playing. Ben Cleveland, another offensive lineman, not playing uh, because of academic issues. The players that we – I'm surprised that Swift is playing, but he is saying – at least in the lead-up to the game, that he is playing. He's also said he's going to announce after the game whether or not he's leaving for the draft. I thought that was weird, personally. If I were Swift, I would not be playing in this game, and I would have already announced that I'm going to the draft. I can't imagine on any level that Swift will come back for his senior season. Um, I don't think we want him to come back. I know that sounds stupid, but we, we, we've got a couple five-star recruits, one that's officially announced, one that I expect to be announced uh, on the second at the Under Armour All-American game. But Georgia has recruited and has handled this entire cycle as if they think Swift is leaving. If he comes back, I don't know what that means. It's not a bad thing to have him back, but I think it, it, it would be surprising, very surprising at this point. No word on Richard LeCrount. No word on Monty Rice, a couple other players that could potentially go to the draft. You know, last year, I was very surprised. Not necessarily that Isaac Nata left early, but the other three receivers, I was surprised. Miko, Riley Ridley, um, I, I, I was surprised those guys left. I didn't think that they would have left. And so, um, you never know. I don't think LeCount and Monty Rice will leave, and I don't think Jake Fromm will leave. I know there's been a lot of talk about that. You know, I've left the Facebook group uh, that I was in that just put me in a bad mood for most of the fall. But I do know there's a lot of people who think the team would be better off without Jake Fromm. I think those people are certifiable. But I understand where they're coming from. I just think that the conclusion they draw is completely wrong. Uh, But all of those players could be announcing, and there may be some surprises even outside of that after the bowl game. But at this point, they're all practicing. They're all scheduled to play in the bowl, um, and we'll find out about their futures at Georgia after the bowl game. So because of all of that, because of the players leaving, because of, you know, just the fact that 
this season didn't map out. It didn't feel the same as 2018 and definitely not the same as 2017. It feels like we're in a little bit of a transition time. And so the question for me is, what will Kirby do with this bowl game? How is he approaching it? What is the thought process going into it? I can tell you what my thought process is, and if I were Kirby, what my process would be. I don't see this game as the conclusion of 2019. I see this game as the start of 2020, and I'll tell you why. Ever since halftime of the SEC championship game in 2018, things have been going downhill. It has not been that good since then. Obviously, the second half of the the SEC title game in 18, we end up blowing the big lead again to Alabama. We lose last year the bowl game to Texas after running our mouths about being in the playoff. That was obviously bad. And then this entire season, even though there were great moments, you know, you, for a Georgia fan, you don't get to beat Notre Dame at home and that electric environment and say that the whole season was a disappointment and a waste. You don't get to go to Knoxville and win a game the way we won a game and say, oh, man, that doesn't matter. You don't get to beat Florida, win the SEC East. All the things that we did, those things do matter. But when you take the season as a whole, and now that we have a little time, it's definite to say that 2019 was a disappointment. That doesn't mean there wasn't good inside 2019, but overall it was a disappointment. And we need to leave it behind us. And that's what, if I were Kirby, I'd be talking to these younger players. I would focus on playing the younger guys. Even if Swift plays, I don't think I'd give him more than 10 touches because for him, he needs to be focused on the draft. And that's why I'm, ex- I'm really surprised that he is playing. I'm surprised Kirby's letting him play. I want to see James Cook. I want to see Zamir White. I want to see what we're going to look like next year. Besides Ben Cleveland, I want to see what the offensive line is going to look like. Get those reps. Take First team reps with the players that are going to be there. You know, um, in a way, I think Kirby would have been happier if anybody that was going to declare for the draft did it before this game and everybody just went. And that includes Jake Fromm. And I know that would have meant Stetson Bennett starting this game and all of that. That's all that's fine. I would want to turn the page. I would want to start focusing on 2020 and I would be telling my young players like N'Kobe Dean and, uh, all of those young guys on defense, hey, freshman season is over. This is your sophomore season starting right now. We got to start working to get better for next September. And that's how I would have handled the entire bowl process, all the bowl practices. That's how I would be handling the bowl game is, okay, we've practiced. Now go out there and show me something. And then that leads you into spring practice and into the summer and on into the 2020 season. So, The biggest question about philosophy is, one, coming off of this year, will the offense change? Will the philosophy change surrounding the offense? Now, just because we don't see it change in the bowl game doesn't mean it's not going to change. I think, and I heard somebody, I think it was Jeff Schultz, uh, say this in the last couple of weeks. Georgia's offense was different in the SEC championship game than it had been throughout the year. It was a lot more pass. It was a lot more wide open. They didn't execute. The players didn't execute, but the play calling was different. It was not that conservative style. Now, whether that was indicative of a philosophical change for Kirby and James Coley, 
whether that was the fact that LSU presented a different problem offensively that changed Georgia's offensive mindset, or whether it was just how the game played out. LSU in general, you know, it wasn't that they had planned to be different during the game, but once LSU started scoring, Georgia had to change their philosophy. It doesn't matter why, but it was different. There were more creative ways to pass the ball. There were more attempts to pass the ball. There were more attempts to run outside and jet sweeps and all of the different things they tried to do. They just didn't do it well, which if they did start changing the philosophy heading into the SEC championship game, it may be a sign of good things to come because it makes sense that with only one week of preparation that the Georgia players wouldn't be able to execute those plays and that philosophy as well as they had the conservative style we had seen the entire year. But with three more weeks to practice now, do we see them open it up a little bit against Baylor? Or does Kirby Slow play it? He's decided he's going to open things up, but we're not going to give everything away right now. We're going to continue practicing it, maybe open things up just a little bit, but it won't look night and day different than it did against LSU. To me, that's the intriguing part of this game. That and Baylor has a high-powered offense. I'm interested to see how our defense looks against it, okay? Defense didn't look great against LSU. They looked good, but they definitely got worn down, despite the fact that we play like 25 guys regularly on defense. Not at the same time, that would be a penalty. But the rotation that we do gets us a lot of guys on the field. They got worn down against LSU, and they did not look great in the second half. It will be interesting to see against another pass-oriented, wide-open offense like Baylor how the defense looks, especially those young guys. You know, I mentioned N'Kobe Dean, but there's a lot of young guys on that defense that we, you know, Nolan Smith, uh, Tyreek Stevenson, the cornerback. There's a lot of young guys on that defense that we want to see, and we want to see how they're going to progress. Now, the early enrollees can practice with the team. So that's the, the players that have already signed their national letter of intent a few weeks ago. They're on board. They're going to be in the program. They can practice They cannot play in this game. So you will not see the likes of Carson Beck or Kendall Milton or any of those guys. But they are able to practice with the team. So um, you might see a little bit of a different fire because some of those guys are getting reps and, you know, the the older players are looking and going, oh, crap. You know, maybe Zamir White's looking at Kendall Milton going, I don't know how much I'm going to get the ball next year. I got to step it up. You know, maybe not. I'm just saying there's opportunities there to see – start formulating what the 2020 team is going to look like, even in practice, even though we won't see that on the field for the Sugar Bowl. So for me, um, this is two good teams that had good seasons, but maybe not quite as good as their ranking show. I mean, we got number five against number seven. You would think that these are a couple of elite teams. And I don't think that's the case. I think Baylor was a product of the fact that they won some big games. They got rolling. Uh, but it helped that Oklahoma State and Kansas State and Texas kind of took a step back and allowed Baylor to take a step forward uh, in the Big 12. Similarly for Georgia. The end result, 11-2, and two, you know, with one of those losses being in the SEC title game, 11-1, and one, you, can't, you can't be mad at that, okay? You can be mad that the one was South Carolina, all of that. We've been through all that. But 11-1 is good. A lot of years, 11-1 is going to put you right there in the playoff picture like it did this year. Uh, But I think as you look back and you realize, okay, it was a close win against Florida. It was a close win against Auburn. So as good as the season was, and you can't take anything away from that, 
you could flip, you know, a couple of one possession games there and all of a sudden, you know, we're a three loss team maybe playing in the Outback Bowl and not a one loss team in the regular season playing in the Sugar Bowl. So a lot of, to me, a lot of this coming into this game is, you know, we're good, we're not great. And this is a good test because I think Baylor's good and not great. The difference when we talk about motivation here is that for Baylor, 2019 was a magical year. It was their version of our 2017, okay? It's not going to end in the national championship game. But, man, Baylor, where they were three or four years ago after the mess with Art Bryles, the way he left that program, the idea that Baylor this year would be in the Sugar Bowl, if you'd have said that before the year, you would have been laughed out of any room you were in, and that's including probably the coaches' meetings at Baylor. Uh, what Matt Rule's done at Baylor is very impressive. He's a good guy from everything that I've been able to see, and it's good for that program to be able to put a very dark piece of their history behind them and have the season that they've been able to have. They beat every team on their schedule that is not named Oklahoma. Two losses on the year, both of them to Oklahoma. Um, I think maybe that's where I thought Texas would be. You know, maybe maybe Texas has that season, but no, it was it was Baylor. And so they're going to be motivated. This is the first time they've played the Sugar Bowl in like 50-something years. They, they are, they're excited to be here. Are they disappointed in the way that they lost to Oklahoma? Of course. But for them, this entire season is gravy. The fact that they're back here on this stage, they're going to be motivated. For Georgia, the question is, will they be motivated? We saw what happened last year coming off the disappointment against Alabama, not really wanting to be in the Sugar Bowl. Um, although so many pieces of this are similar to last year my feeling is that it's not the same I get the feeling that Kirby's not feeling the same about this that in general our team is feeling a lot different this year compared to last year yes we're ranked fifth just like we were last year but this fifth feels a lot different this fifth doesn't feel like we had an argument to be in the playoff I mentioned it on my last podcast, but when, or sorry, two podcasts ago, but when the, uh, the committee said that the conversation for number four was between Georgia and Oklahoma, the first thought went through my mind is, well, how long did they spend wasting time on that? Because you could, there's not a conversation there. It must have been, okay, Oklahoma's four, Georgia's five. Everybody cool with that? Yep. I mean, I, I can't see how it would anybody, I mean, myself included, Kirby Smart included. What argument do you make for Georgia being in the playoff over Oklahoma? So it's not last year where they feel like they've gotten done wrong and that, okay, you know, maybe they didn't play great against, you know, LSU, but they showed against Alabama how good they were and they deserved another shot. That's not the case this year. They got embarrassed in the SEC title game, and I think this team has a lot to prove. I think the transition that we feel as fans going into this game, the players feel as well. And I think they have to decide, okay, what's 2020 going to be? For Kirby Smart, the coaches, all of that, there's stuff outside of the players' concern or outside of their control. The players have to decide what they're going to do, how they're going to approach things. And if you do have some seniors that are staying, if Richard LeCount, Jake Fromm, Monty Rice, if those guys are coming back and they're going to say, hey, this is going to be like 2016 to 2017. No, we're not a four-loss team or any of that kind of stuff, but we're about to turn the page. We're going to make 2020 something special. And you see that senior leadership or about-to-be senior leadership 
already, maybe they already know, hey, we're all staying. This is what we're going to do. They may come into this game with their hair on fire a little bit. And if the offensive philosophies change a little bit, we may see a very motivated Georgia team in this game. And I hope that's what we see. Because at this point, 2019's done. It's a disappointment. You're not ever going to be able to change that. But if you could finish this season off slash start 2020 off with an impressive showing in the Sugar Bowl, I think it will really change not the way we perceive 2019, but will change how we feel right now moving forward. So I think there's a lot to be gained in this game for Georgia. Now, as a fan, you may be saying, Jane, Jamie, this game kicks off at 845. I got to work the next day. Why should I care? Let me give you one number that tells you why you should care. 249. Take two seconds to try to think about what that number is before I tell you. That's the number of days after this game is over until the next time we're going to see our boys tee the football up. That's why we should care. Throughout the entire fall, at the beginning of the season I say it, throughout the entire fall I say it, this is the most excruciatingly short season in sports in America. It goes by so fast. And the waiting that we have to start on January 2nd until we get to September 7th, Labor Day night, when we'll see our boys play Virginia, it's a long time. And that feeling that you start having in June and July, when it gets close enough to actually start writing down somewhere and counting down the number of days and when's media day and what's the team looking like and all of that kind of stuff, I want you to have that feeling and start thinking about that feeling. I want you to start thinking about it on Wednesday night about 7 o'clock, and that way you can start motivating yourself as to why this game is important. Is it going to change 2019? No. But it's the last time you're going to get to see Georgia play football and for the next 249 days. And if you're telling me there's not a Saturday in March where you wish you could sit down and watch a Georgia football game against anybody, you're lying. So enjoy this game because it's a game. Because we only get a few of them every single year. We're guaranteed 12. This year we got 14. So this is number 14. And that's why it's important. Because every single time the dogs tee it up, it's worth taking some time to watch the game. Hopefully we're going to be happy. I'll give you a prediction. I'm going 34-24 Georgia. And I think you're going to see a motivated Georgia team. That's just, here we are. I've, I've gotten past the LSU loss. I've gotten past the disappointment. It's time for optimistic Jamie to come back, and that's what you're getting. 34-24, dogs win the Sugar Bowl. As I am recording this, I got a text message after I finished the last segment, so I took a look at it, and then I had to go to Twitter to, uh, to confirm but uh, for anybody, by the time you listen to this, it won't be breaking news, but it is breaking right now. Dan Quinn and Thomas Dimitrov are coming back for the Atlanta Falcons. Uh, basically, the change that's being made appears to be a change in the football operation structure where Quinn and Dimitrov will both report to Rich McKay, who I think is maybe like the president of the Falcons or something like that, um, report directly to Mitch Mc- or Rich McKay, who will then report to Arthur Blank. So what that means, uh, obviously on the field, means nothing's changing. I mean, I think if Quinn's coming back, you're going to see the majority of the coaching staff come back. You won't see any kind of major overhauls as far as personnel goes. Not that you can do a whole lot of overhauling. Um, But what it may mean is 
we say something very different when it comes to uh, the draft. So who, who is going to have control over the Falcons draft in April? What's the vision, the overall vision of the team? I think that was the one thing that maybe a lot of fans didn't understand about the Falcon structure. When Dan Quinn was hired, Dimitrov was held on after the Mike Smith era, but Dan Quinn was given final say over personnel. So ultimately, he was the one making draft picks. Obviously, he's going to depend a lot on Thomas, but Dan Quinn was the guy making the decision. So I don't know if that changes now. Again, all of this is just coming out. Also, received the text that uh, apparently the Braves are talking to the Rockies about Nelson, uh, Nolan Arenado. That's all they're doing. They're talking. I would be surprised if they weren't talking. So there's nothing more that's happened on that right now. But if we see, and again, I'm reporting this on Friday morning, if we see Josh Donaldson sign sometime today with a four-year deal with either the uh, the Nationals or uh, the Rangers or whoever, um, those talks may be more legitimate than just simple rumor at this point. So I'm happy that now there's going to be something to have a podcast about next week. We'll, pre, we'll uh, go back over what happened in the Sugar Bowl and with the NFL season over, we'll talk a little bit about Falcons and hopefully by then the Braves have made a decision on third base and maybe we'll have something very excited to talk about there. So thank you so much for listening. This has been a joy to do this year. I hope you've enjoyed it. We'll get started again next week with uh, season two. I can do that. So we're just going to use each year as a season. So season two, episode one, the first podcast of 2020, we'll, uh, we'll hit you up next week. Thank you so much. Happy New Year. Have a great day.